0: If you have your own story of being in a cult or a high-control group, or if you've had an experience with manipulation
1: or abuse of power you'd like to share, shoot us an email at trustmepod at gmail.com.
2: Trust me. Dude, you trust me. Trust me. I'm like a smart person. Yeah, I've never lied to you. I never have lied
0: to you. If you think that one person has all the answers, don't. Welcome to Trust Me. The podcast about cults, extreme belief, and the abuse of power from two self-regulators who've actually experienced it. I am Lola Blanc, and I am Megan Elizabeth. And today our guest is Dr. Robert Roten, CEO of the Arizona Trauma Institute and president at the Trauma Institute International. He is going to talk to us about how the particular modality of therapy isn't as important as we tend to think it is, as long as our therapist is trauma informed, emotional regulation and dysregulation, and why it's akin to a certain Marvel character and why it's important. For our therapists
1: to be regulated themselves, we'll also discuss how our culture encourages dysregulation and how dysregulation can even become our identity, practical ways to get regulated, and how we can actually begin to heal our trauma over time. Yay! Fascinating
0: combo. He's amazing. Before we start talking to him, yes, Megan, what's the coziest thing that's happened to you this week or your worst
1: dysregulation moment this week? Oh, I. Love the Wim Hof. Most people, I'm sure, know it, but it's W-Y-M-H-O-F-F breathing exercises that's free on YouTube. You just type in Wim Hof 10 minutes. When I do that, I am so regulated. It's insane. (laughs) That sounds like such a funny brag. (laughs) I'm I'm so so regulated. regulated. (laughs) It's fucking crazy. So shut up. But it really balances out my system and everybody else I've recommended it to. So you just like do breathing in and out without stopping for a minute and then you hold your breath for a minute and then you let it out and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I love it. Mm. What about you? Okay.
0: Okay. And if you guys don't know what regulation is, we're going to define it in this episode. But basically when you're dysregulated, that's when you are sort of like your body sort of hijacked by an emotion, whether it's like anger or a trauma trigger or anxiety. Basically anytime your like logic brain is sort of taken over by your
1: emotion brain. It barely ever happens to me. (laughs) Just kidding. I live in it constantly.
0: (laughs) I feel like I am a pretty well regulated person, honestly, like most of the time. Other than the like anxiety stuff, I'm like
1: very (gasps) That's a really funny sentence, (laughs) Lila. Besides the crippling anxiety, I am very regulated. Like I always behave exactly the same yeah it's like more uneasy well it's more like my
0: thoughts are spiraling i had one single panic attack but i haven't had any panic attacks since then you know what i mean like typically typically my the way that i operate in the world is someone who's like very even keeled Mm -hmm. which is maybe part of the problem because i'm not expressing my feelings enough right (laughs) but most of my friends describe me as like pretty moderate in in temperament but this week
1: I uh got quite dysregulated. <laughs> got quite dysregulated. Oh, what a wonderful coincidence. What happened? <laughs> um
0: well a few things happened. I mean, I'm in pre-production for my short film, which is extremely
1: exciting and awesome. Thank you so much to the listeners who donated, you guys. My God, Oh that's my God, so thank cool. you
0: so much. I feel like no one still told me what they wanted uh, me to say for their shout out, but I'll f- we will figure it out. Yay. <laughs> so I'm in pre-production now, and it is extremely stressful. I don't know if you know this, but uh, making a short film is hard. Uh-huh. Um,
1: <laughs> yep, sounds about right.
0: And even though we have a budget, budget where so we have a 3 day shoot so that budget is gone like instantly so we basically have no budget that's been really stressful and then my dog gave me some trouble this week i like thought he was dying again is he gambling <laughs> again he went on a binge <laughs> 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 came home wasted.
1: Rambo, you fucking asshole.
0: He, whatever. I, I thought he was dying again because he's like
1: 15 and a half. I always think he's dying, but he really seemed like he was dying. Every time I see him, I love him so much. I'm like, probably not much time I have left with you. And then he's like <laughs> looking at me like, I'm gonna live for like 30 more years, dude. He just and He keeps
0: will. living. I don't know how it happens. <laughs> um, but he did not die, so that's good. But and then, also, whatever, like my mom had some, her, she had hurt her leg last week, and that was like a whole thing. Aww. It's been just like a lot of stressors at once. And then, so Jack and I went to Joshua Tree this past weekend, and we got in a fight on the way to Joshua Tree. <laughs> and y'all, I was not my best self. I was not my best self. <laughs> he had an annoyance with me, and The fact that he was annoyed about that thing, it triggered like five different things from my childhood and previous relationships at once somehow. So I like, instead of keeping my cool, I started being hostile. I started being passive aggressive. It all ended up fine. We talked about it and I like pinpointed why it was so sensitive for me. I was so hypersensitive from everything that had been going on that week that like, I just lost it. That's fun. But me losing it is still, like, not that bad. Like, you know, I'm not yelling. Like, what am I really doing? I'm just being a little bit passive aggressive. I'm sure the silent treatment
1: was brutal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I felt that anger in my body. Boy, did I feel that heat in my chest, mm. um, which turned into bursting into tears. And- oh, Yeah. And then we did mushrooms and everything was fine. Okay, cool. (laughs) But that's my dysregulation moment. But speaking of Colty though, Joshua Tree, I've been there once or twice, but I usually only stay in the Airbnb. And this time we actually like went into town. Fuck that town is Colty. Oh, yeah. It's very strange. Jack was like it was his first time there and he was like. I feel like some like man with goggles on his head is going to show up at our door and murder us. Like, why? Yeah. I mean, I love it. I love it there. But it's so full of Burning Man people. It's crazy. And so full of like. Oh, yeah. Healers and retreats and,
1: you know. It's obviously my heaven. I love it. I'm going this weekend. My friend got us a little house. You're going this weekend? Wow. Yes. And a coach to Walk us through some stuff in a chef. Um, I'm sorry. What kind of coach? It's uh, she's kind of a tantric coach, honestly, but it's not like we're going to be doing sex stuff. It's more wink, wink. We're not going to be doing sex stuff. We're not going to be doing butt stuff. Wink, wink. No, we're not going to be doing any of that stuff. But she does regulation. So I can't wait to share what I. Learn. she does regulation yeah she's called she's a regulator like <laughs> remember the rapper War- what was his name Warren G in like the 90s when I was like regulators
0: we used to share a manager me and Warren G so that's cool oh then that
1: manager dropped me oh well <laughs> you should drop it like it's hot <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway we've rambled enough let's talk about we've rambled
1: enough let's do it
0: Welcome Dr. Robert Roten, a.k.a. we're going to call you Bob. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. There's so much that we want to talk to you about today. So you're the CEO at Arizona Trauma Institute and the president at Trauma Institute International. Basically, you're the trauma guy, right? This is your thing.
2: Well, I am a trauma guy. (laughs) (laughs)
0: you're one of the trauma guys how did you get into this line of work first of all
2: oh boy kind of by default I was always curious about why do people do the things they do why did my family do the things they did I was always interested in more of the dynamics involved and that kind of propelled me educationally it also became my interest because a lot of what was taught at least in my Counseling programs years and years ago really didn't prepare anybody to work with someone that had a trauma history. And so a lot of it had to be learned after the fact through just becoming an aficionado, if you will, of the research. I love reading the research and making sense of it, and I just found one day that I just knew a whole lot more than most people.
1: Mm. (laughs) Still waiting for that to happen to me. (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell us, what is
0: trauma? What does it mean? What is actually happening in our bodies?
2: So trauma is, in at least the U.S. culture, we think of trauma as an event, and that's really unfortunate that we do, because trauma is about a state of the body, and when the body is taxed beyond its immediate ability to cope. It has to react in some way because it becomes an issue of survival Mm. and either adapts through an aggressive, reactive, assertive piece, or it will react by shutting down, withdrawing, and kind of disconnecting. And those are biologically correct responses. And we have built the whole world of mental health around not recognizing that most of the symptoms we see in any disorder are related to this physiologically correct response. We have all sorts of negative labels for it. So trauma at its core is simply when the physiology of an individual is taxed beyond its ability to adapt. And that does not require a big bad event. Being in a stressful environment for prolonged periods of time will do that. Repeated adversity will do that.
1: You mentioned toxic stress and chronic stress. What are those two kinds of stress? And are they what usually cause the trauma?
2: So it's the reaction that people have to it. First piece, we're all all dealing with several kinds of stress. You know, a lot of times people talk about big T, little t, and that's really not very useful. So let me give you in a little bit of a different way of looking. At you have acute stress, which is an, about an event or situation you know, a car accident, a mugging, a a natural disaster. That's an acute event. Then you have the chronic, which is maybe a lot less intense, but it's just repetitive. It's happening over and over and over again. Right. And then you have complex, which is where not only are you having almost daily overwhelm, you're also experiencing a, a lack of attachment support and the primary stressors tend to be related to connected relationships. And attachment
0: support, if anyone doesn't know what that means, is like if you're a child and you're not receiving the appropriate level of nurturing and attention from your caregiver, basically, right?
2: Sure. And that they don't feel safe with the adults in their world as a child. Right. That creates this complexity. The challenge is that if you think about this from the point of view of an acute situation, Things were relatively okay or functioning well. You have this overwhelming thing happen. And then after the fact, what you're struggling with is getting back to that pre-level of functionality. Mm -hmm. Most people do that just fine without therapy. Probably 20% of folks that go through that process need therapy even. But most go through it because the structure of their world has the supports built in to kind of help them get through that. Right. Where we start to see the emergence of both mental health issues and behavioral issues is the, when it becomes chronic, you have these states happen again and again and again and Mm -hmm. again. So you're getting overwhelmed on a pretty regular basis. If you have it just as a constant flow of it, the way our bodies are designed, our nervous system is built to survive, avoid distress and build habits around it, which is a conservation of energy function. So what people do is they build belief systems from their experiences, and they're always going to be focused on safety or avoidance of distress as their primary function. But everything in our society is suggesting that you need to be oriented to future goals. And everything in their world is about, how do I feel safe? How do I avoid distress? And then we're frustrated with people because We want them to embark on some journey of improvement, Mm. which immediately shoves them into distress. I don't care what you're doing. If you're going to go to the gym and get in shape, you're going to go through distress.
0: (laughs) That is true. (laughs) I can attest Um, I'm very sore right now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So what you find is people in the helping professions don't often understand that asking people with that kind of history, a chronic or complex trauma history, asking them to step into a future is very distressing to them and it tends to shut them down. And so what ends up happening is a, a lot of negative labeling around they're resistant, they're non-compliant, they aren't motivated. Mm. And really that's not the case at all. What it is a case of is highly unskilled providers They don't know how to recognize what they're dealing with.
0: So basically trauma is like a version of overwhelm in our bodies. We can't handle it. So we respond by either you said anger and aggression or shutting down. I mean, I guess Of course, people who have angry outbursts, there's something they're not dealing with that's underneath the anger. But I guess I always think of trauma as like, oh, I'm shutting down. I'm dissociating. I'm like cowering in a corner. You know, can you talk about the different responses that we have and why?
2: So it's about control. You think I am overwhelmed. I've lost control of myself. My body is doing these amazing things and I'm going to try to gain control. So the aggressive piece of that, which we usually call a reactive adaption, that is often pretty aggressive, pretty hostile. You'll see a lot of controlling behaviors. Mm. People will do something actively to try to get control of it. They may use sarcasm, name calling. They may threaten because Mm. what they're trying to do is get into a place where they can feel safe.
0: Right. Um, Hence, hurt people, hurt people.
2: Oh, yeah. Hurt people, hurt people.
0: But some the people are side, just assholes, right? <laughs> or or sociopaths. I, I think
2: all human beings are assholes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. You know, it
2: just depends on the moment and the situation. That the is, other side of that is, is the one you were kind of talking about, is I'm still trying to gain control, but I'm trying to contain control of myself. Mm-hmm. So I shut down withdrawal. So if you want to think of it, the two methods of dealing with this generally are I'm going to try to control me by shutting this experience down Mm. or I'm going to try to control others so that I... By
0: shutting their experiences down. Right, right. This explains one of my past relationships very (laughs) succinctly. Uh I had an ex who had a a lot of attachment trauma, but also just regular trauma repeatedly throughout his childhood. And of course, he was quite controlling within our relationship. That's
1: what I wanted to ask about. You know, we talk about cults a lot on the show and religion, even if it's not culty, A lot of people were raised being told hell is real and that you could go there. Do you see a lot of people suffering from trauma in that way, like religious trauma? Mm -hmm.
2: The problem with a history of trauma, what you would find kind of growing to maturity in a cult, is that the messages that are negative, that inner critic, that the beliefs that are, are what I call hope destroyers are firmly embedded, and usually fairly young. Right. Hmm. So the hell's already there, and they're already living in it. And when you're in that level of arousal, you can't think clearly. If you think about it, and I'm going to kind of use a silly metaphor. Think about, we move through what's called a, a regulation cycle. You're regulated, you become dysregulated, and you re-regulate. So you're really hungry, you're dysregulated. You grab a box of Oreos. Afterwards, you're re-regulated. That's the cycle that we all go through. Where trauma symptoms emerge is when people get in the dysregulated state and can't Mm. re-regulate. Think of it this way. And I'm going to use a Marvel comic metaphor. You're moving from being in Bruce Banner mode, where you're calm and everything is really composed, into the Hulk mode. And then you have to move from the Hulk mode back into Bruce Banner We can only function well, learn, grow, and be intentional when we're in Bruce Banner mode. What I think is funny is teachers will do this and, you know, all sorts of folks engage. They engage the Hulk and they want to scold shame and control the Hulk
0: Mm. rather
2: than what do I need to get people back into Bruce Banner mode?
0: Right. And
2: and that's, (laughs) we do the same thing a lot of times in the mental health world particularly people who don't have much experience really working or understanding trauma will try to dictate or do cognitive work with the hulk and it's funny to watch because they fail a lot and then what happens is those internalized messages that the that the person got early in life about being worthless or broken or damaged are reinforced mm. because of the in the unskilled ungraceful way that the person is working with them.
0: Right. So basically, when you are dysregulated for whatever reason, you can't access the part of your brain that can think more clearly and logically and plan. And we've talked about a little bit of the like system one, system two sort of framework that Daniel Kahneman has written about. System one is the Hulk. System two is Bruce Banner.
2: So think of it this way. System one is your amygdala system that is survival and safety oriented.
0: right. Right. Just got to protect myself no matter what. And then when you're system to you can actually be like, what was I thinking? What was I feeling? Why was I responding that way? So basically, like if we're having a trauma response, we know what to do when we're hungry. What do we do when we're having trauma response?
2: Well, in our society, we don't promote the regulation.
1: No. Mm-mm. We promote the exact opposite, working yourself to right. a frenzy. We,
2: we focus on high levels of emotionality, mm-hmm. which keep people disturbed.
1: Right. So a therapist just focusing on your high level emotionality is not going to help you. That's not the right content to focus on.
2: No. Right. No. And, or, and the cognitive function isn't going to work well either because the emotional – think of it this way. When, what are you really activating when you access negative emotions is the survival system, that, that primitive you know, um, amygdala system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, and you're, and as soon as you access that, you pump your body th- full of cortisol noradrenaline and, and adrenaline and, and the function of those increasing in your body shuts your hippocampus down, which makes it, it inhibits your ability to think clearly.
0: Just to clarify for people who might not like have context for what y'all are talking about, like Are you talking about, like, if you're in therapy and you're just, like, talking about the traumatic event over and over again? What exactly do you mean?
2: So in the 1950s, in the early days of cognitive psychology, you had uh, George Kelly come up with a a profound understanding about how cognition works. And and I'm going to simplify it for you. What you focus on, you get more of. Mm Mm-hmm. So having therapists focus on negative emotion generates more negative emotion, Mm -hmm. but that's what they're all taught to chase after. Because of course you, it's all about emotion in our society, right? You know, you know, you're supposed to purge your emotions and feel your emotions and do this and, and focusing on a, on intense negative emotions, just create more of them.
1: But are we supposed to repress them or? Or what do we do with them?
2: It's not amount of repressing them or not. That's kind of a, that comes out of that psychodynamic influence that hopefully we eventually get away from. <laughs> but it is, it, it, if you look at people that have been in care for a while, one of the, and, and you do a file review, what you're going to find the longer they're in care, the more symptoms they develop and the more diagnoses they get and the more medications mm, they're interesting. on. Why? Because that, perpetuates the system and it, and it perpetuates pharmacy companies. Mm. It does not help your client.
0: For a lot of people, they probably went, especially a lot of our listeners may have gone like many, many years without talking about what's happened to them. Um, And so just the simple act of like recognizing what happened and expressing it is, that is an important step, right? Like to initially like discuss it and feel it. You but bet. You can, but yeah
2: let me really correct you there. It's being able to go through that story mm-hmm. and do it in a way that does not trigger negative emotions.
0: Mm. So how do we do that?
2: Well, that that's why you go to somebody that's skilled in how to do that. <laughs> um, but you know, let me give you the the difference in the way that the language, the, the way the conversation can go. Mm-hmm. So if I am, if you've had something like you know, a, a long repressed history of, of all sorts of traumatic events. Um, what we would do is begin, we would talk about them, but you want the client to be in the role of an observer of the experience rather than reactivating all of the negative pain associated with it. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. they can move past it once they can, once they in, can engage that material without it overwhelming them. Right. Right then they can heal.
0: So that reminds me of, you know, my experiences in EMDR a bit, where it's like we go through it until it feels like neutral. It doesn't feel charged anymore. And it also Mm -hmm. reminds me of my experiences in ERP for OCD, where I intentionally expose myself to the things that I have an aversion to until I realize I can tolerate the distress. And then they slowly become more and more neutral and and not a trigger anymore. Is that Mm -hmm. kind of the stuff that you're talking about?
2: That's very much... Almost all successful trauma models use what we call divided consciousness. That's where you're both recalling an experience and observing it at the same time.
0: Mm.
2: And you, you, the moment you activate the amygdala system, you pull them right out of the ability to do that. So,
0: right people that
2: people that keep talking about the feelings related to this, you know, you don't. Ha- we're not minimizing the feelings, but you would pull it back into their body. So I I just felt this tremendous rage take me take over. Where did you first notice that? What Mm -hmm. did you notice makes it worse? When who were you around when it was at its least?
0: Mm.
2: It's we're going to explore it completely deconstruct all around it. But we aren't trying to recreate the emotion in the Mm -hmm. moment, because that isn't going to be helpful.
0: Right. So it's almost like mindfulness. You have to like kind of step back and observe what exactly was happening for you physically when you had that emotional experience. And like you said, become mm-hmm. an observer of it as opposed to just like being overwhelmed
1: by it and stuck mm-hmm. in the feeling.
2: So, and, and you have to be relatively regulated in order to do mindfulness.
1: So that would be where the therapist comes in. The therapist needs to be regulated and you oh, hear them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what most people are missing in therapy is a regulated therapist. Well, well,
2: a regulated therapist, yes, but it, they don't we don't we do not teach how to reg, exactly. self-regulate in our, in our society anywhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, and and there's a lot of pressure, even in programs that are really good about teaching it, you know, starting to teach it in schools. The the problem is that nobody really wants us to be regulated because it would seriously affect our consumer society, you know, if you were really regulated and you were making decisions based on logic rather than emotion, you wouldn't probably buy most of the crap you buy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. You right. It, Cause you we're feeling a whole, of, yeah.
2: You wouldn't have a whole mountain of cr- credit uh, <laughs> debt, you know, because you, you wouldn't, that wouldn't make sense if you were doing it rationally. But if you're, if we can promote emotional decision-making, then we can sell junk people don't need impulsively.
0: Right. But my and- excessive shopping is totally rational. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm just using that as an example.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What,
2: what we have found is that this, the large systems support a trauma generating system.
0: Well, the news cycle, I mean, is oh, the perfect course, yeah. example. Like it, we if we're not all in a state of panic and <laughs> <laughs> then we're dead. Then, yeah. well, then they sell no newspaper, you know, like they have to. They have to make the headlines really right. be, um, dysregulating because but,
2: they are trying to sell stuff
0: right. exactly. but so, but but therapists, I I just like I cannot stress enough to people to find therapists who specialize in the thing that you're going through because I definitely it took me a long time to get the appropriate kind of treatment because I kept just picking therapists who like, were on my insurance and they had like a pretty picture. Fifty things listed. <laughs> I'm just me, okay. Fifty things listed in their specialty, and I'm like, well, that's one of them, but it's not like they're the focus of their practice. But anyone who's dealing with something like OCD or a panic disorder or uh, PTSD, like. Should probably see someone who really specializes and really is trained in that. Don't get me started on our mental health care
1: system and how most people don't have specialists on their insurance, but um, it's like a genre. you know you you want Steven Spielberg to direct your sci-fi thing. <laughs> you, you you gotta pick the person working. Yeah, with you it. need someone in the trauma genre., yeah, yeah. it's a trauma genre.
2: <laughs> um, but, and I, I agree with you. there you know, basically people in private practice will, List that they do really everything, and right. you know, uh, people always kind of chuckle at me when I was, you know, running clinics. I said, "We do this. This is what we do.
0: Right. It's the only thing we do." Yeah.
2: And they said, "Well, how can you make any money on that?" <laughs> well, I don't know. We have six month waiting list. Uh, you know, wow. doing okay. Wow. But it is it is kind of a crazy world, and and a lot of the you know. I taught in a counseling program for nearly 20 years. And one of the things I used to get really interested in is there were people that are really smart that should never be with clients. Mm. And when I would have these conversations with the leadership of the school, they would say, you cannot dismiss them or encourage <laughs> them to go to another program because it affects our revenue. But there, and, the, and programs are designed to either focus on the exploration of emotion, or cognitive behavior. And in your trauma client isn't going to function well in either of those.
0: Um, So stepping back a little bit. So when we talked on just you and I before this interview, you said something really interesting, which was that I asked you, you know, are there any particular healing modalities that we should employ in our trauma recovery? And you made a really good point, so I will now let you make it.
2: Um, Let me clearly state I have a bias. The research that's out there that's been coming forward an increasing amount since the the early 90s suggests that the process of working with a client is more important than a model of treatment. Mm -hmm. And in fact, models of treatment um, at the best only impact the outcome of treatment around most of the research says one and a half or 2%, but some of it says as much as five. But Whoa, the, when you really? actually, you, you know, people put all this emphasis in to their model mm. and there's a, there's a really good, there's a good reason that why mental health organizations promote that and that it keeps people sick.
1: How
2: mm. um, because when you're focused on the model, you don't focus on the relationship and the thing that we know is the largest influence is the ability of the therapist who is well regulated to be able to connect with in a safe form a safe and secure attachment with the client that has that is the most impactful element for an outcome in therapy that there is it's fully half of what influences Wow. the outcome of therapy.
0: That reminds So what us-
2: we've done is put all this emphasis on models of treatment, mm-hmm. rather than you have to be regulated yourself and you have to be able to attach to people. And organizations don't want you to do that. They want you to be efficient. They want to give you 100 clients. They want you to, you know, and it, it becomes about billing
0: mm-hmm. and,
2: and, If you can bill and not get complaints, then you're a wonderful therapist.
0: (laughs) You also said something about how once we're regulated, it's almost not even that important. Like once we learn how to bring that overwhelm down and like get back into our bodies, then any number of treatments could work.
2: Anything will work.
0: I think that is so interesting. You know, I see a lot of emphasis in my nerddom of the psychology community on like, this is the one, you know, there's like a copyright symbol behind the man's name about how this particular <laughs> treatment is going to, is the thing that works, you know?
2: You're- so what happens is once, you know, while you're developing it, um, you know, you're really intent making sure that you get a good connection with your client. Cause you, I mean, it's really important. You're, you're collecting data to, but and once you've got a, once you've got a model and you know, it works, the moment it becomes a product, It is now, it's now a sales job Mm. and what you find it's can be used for everything. Now, uh, EMDR is a good example of this. EMDR was, is really designed to work with acute trauma, right? And now you have people using it for all sorts of bizarre things because the EMDR people say, oh it's good for this and it's good for this and it's good for this. But if you look at the research, it wasn't really designed for that.
0: And the reason for that is because you are f- focusing on specific memories that are, feel very charged, and if, right? Like, and if it's just a general thing or maybe like complex trauma or, or chronic trauma, it's, it's not going to be the same thing necessarily.
2: It doesn't, it doesn't work as well. Right. And right. in fact, if you look at the, um, a lot of the research around that, you find that um, traditional models of treatment and many of the post-traumatic stress, which is based, most of those models are based on an acute event, Right. they become less efficient the more chronic or complex trauma is.
0: I really want to know about what some of the differences are, like this one, like EMDR might not be the best treatment for chronic trauma. What are the differences in how we can heal from these different
2: things? So first, let me kind of walk you through that you have to be able to create the environment where healing can occur.
0: Tell us about that. that.
2: First and foremost, you have to be able to regulate you. You cannot help somebody else go to a place you can't get to yourself.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, that's really hard when I'm training therapists. That That is really the hardest part is getting a therapist to be able to regulate well enough to sit with a dysregulated client. Do either of
0: you have experiences with therapists who are dysregulating within the sessions with their clients? Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. Really? Yeah. Tell me how, because I feel like, I feel maybe I just have, have had really stoic therapists.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it looks, you know, if the therapist is in their head trying to figure out what to do or how to make sense of what you're just saying or they're becoming reactive themselves, they're not regulated anymore. If they have been trained to think that empathy is about feeling somebody else's pain they're dysregulating themselves in a session.
1: Mm. What's when the correct we, way to think about empathy? Um,
2: empathy is about, really is about understanding how human beings work and having tolerance for that.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any tolerance. for that. So that's <laughs> a good, good idea. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I, yeah. I've you know had me, moments
0: with therapists where I feel like I can see that they've gotten insecure because they feel like they're not doing it right. That's the closest I think.
2: Yep. And that's <laughs> think just, they're done. dysregulating at that moment. The moment that happens, their body's pumping in extra cortisol and noradrenaline mm. and <laughs> they're losing access to their executive functioning system.
1: So what would what you you'll do? Find,
2: the, the, the easiest way to, for, the, for those therapists to get through the session is to ask you an emotionally laden question, let you talk and they can just shut down.
0: Mm. Well, uh, all right. So for people who are going to therapy and and who are not therapists, um, please continue. You were saying first we have to sort of find a therapist who, you know, is well regulated themselves.
2: And then you, you have to you have to help the client be successful. Remember, people with trauma histories are always looking for certainty, safety and clarity. And so when you get them into the process, you want to orient them thoroughly You want to lay out exactly what it's going to look like. You want to help them see what other people have done when they've run into roadblocks and you'll run into roadblocks. These are the common roadblocks. You lay them out, you explain them, you talk about how people get past them. Um, You talk about the format of a session. You talk about, you really do make it very, very clear. And when you make it very clear, you make it safe. Mm. You also are going to talk about the areas in your own life which may interfere with their therapy and
1: what would that look like
2: um for example if you were working with me i'm going to warn you that i really love the science and sometimes if you ask a question and i jump into unfolding a a piece of research on genetics and trauma (laughs) uh, yeah it's you're you're welcome to say hey you know you're off the mark because I love that stuff, and I tend to. If somebody asks me a question, I get this ooh ooh moment, and there I go, <laughs> and that's likely to impact your session. Um, you know, I also have people tell me sometimes that I talk over their head, and that's probably true. I you know I lectured in college classes, graduate classes for twenty years, and and I love research, and I tend mm-hmm. if I'm not really being mindful, I tend to do that. So I just. I'm really clear. I tell them the things that they're likely to run into working with me. Let's be honest. We're all weird in our own special way. And what we do a lot of times is we want to hide that and not be honest about it. Mm. But if I can be honest with them about what they're going to experience working with me, I make it safe for them to tell me about them.
0: I love that. I've never had a therapist do that. It reminds me of when I've interviewed... um, potential roommates for my home. And I'm like, here's what it's going to be like. I'm never going to do the dishes. Mm-hmm. And there's always going to be a pile of laundry. And my dog has pee pads in the hallway. Other than that,
1: it's fucking awesome to live with me. But you better, you better know that this is what you're signing up for. I mean, is it so, smart to say I'm going through a divorce right now? So just heads up. Or is that too personal? That, that's
2: that's kind of you want to focus it on character.
1: Yeah. I see. And,
2: and and not on your life events. Right. Once they have that safe space, then we begin to immediately educate them about the what the body's doing, and we break it up into little tiny pieces so that, they, that we can help draw out their own life experience to attach to it, and and then we work on getting them regulated. This is all before you employ any model of treatment whatsoever. Mm. And once once they get regulating pretty well, um, a lot of times they don't need therapy.
0: Practically speaking, you know, let's say I'm traumatized, but I can't get into a session for three months. And in the meantime, I have to figure out how to self-regulate. What can I do?
2: Well, you, you need to know what easy skills, because you need skills that are quick. Yeah. For mindfulness skills, you need to be able to focus for a long time. But for, you know, you need something that's pretty quick, less than, less than a minute to get you started on the process. You may have to do two or three things, but you need the really quick ones. And there's lots of them out there. You know, we spend a good portion of every training that we do kind of giving people some of the easy ones. One of the things that I use, and I use it a number of times every day, is simply sigh. And I will I will model that for folks. Look, I even set it up in my orientation of them. You know, I don't know you very well. And as we get to know each other, that'll be great. But right now, when it's new and I don't know you very well, I'm trying to listen to what you say and I'm trying to organize it. Sometimes I get lost and I used to pretend like I knew what I was doing until I could catch up. But now I'm just going to tell you that I got lost and I'm going to ask you if it's okay if I just take 30 seconds and get me focused again so I can hear you. So I just tell them that right up front. And then I, so that I can model a number of things for them. Therapists always want to teach clients, but if you have a client that's in Hulk mode, you have to help them have an experience because you're not going to get anything through to them by teaching. So I would I would interrupt. Remember when I told you I sometimes get lost? <laughs> yeah. It happened to me now. Would it be okay if I just took 30 seconds and got me in shape so I can really focus? In years of doing that, I've never had a client say, no, please stay lost and confused. <laughs> um, and I'll just sigh like this. So I, for me, I sigh, and that really helps. So I sigh. As I do that, I can really feel this area relax and my, but my thinking is still a little bit racing. Would it be okay if I just did it one more time?
0: So what is that actually doing? How, how is that settling our bodies down? Please well, explain.
2: For me, it triggers because I, you know, I use the strategies I use. I use them every day, whether I'm at work or not. What it does is it immediately just brings down a little bit of arousal and it begins to self-correct that, my body pumping in the hormones that it is when I'm, when I'm aroused, but for the client, the first time I do it, they watch, but almost everybody, the second time I do it, because I've just told them that how it benefits me. The second time I do it, almost always, they do it with me. I don't ask them to, they just do. Right. A lot of the self-regulation strategies are conveyed through modeling, not teaching.
0: Well, Because again, most there will probably be a lot of listeners who are not therapists and maybe not in therapy yet. I just want to like outline. Basically, if we're in a state of arousal, our nervous system is like kind of supercharged and we have to get back into our bodies somehow, right?
2: Right. What you have is the the safety and the uh, avoidance system is being charged.
0: And we calm it down with the breath
2: for people for some people breath works really well um, um if you have people that were strangled as a child or held underwater as punishment mm-hmm, or had mm-hmm. uh, stress-related asthma you don't want to use breath activities right but right. it you know s- some people do really well with sensory kind of uh, things different textures um, one of the ones that i use a lot of times which is really simple is um little rubber ball, and I have them uh, take their shoes off and see if they can grip that little rubber ball in their toes. Mm. Because the focus on doing an activity absorbs our attention and calms our system down.
0: Let's talk about that. So this has been such a big part of my own therapy journey is that I get hyper fixated on the fear. I get hyper fixated because I have obsessive thoughts. Um, So I get fixated on the thing that I think is happening. And the biggest skill that I've had to learn is how to acknowledge that that thought is there, not try to push it away, acknowledge that it's there, but then shift your focus to something else that absorbs your intention completely. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the same thing for trauma, right? In addition to OCD.
2: Well, yes. Well, OCD is generated off of those, the same kinds of thought patterns that we see emerge in trauma hmm so yeah that there's all sorts of fun things you can do i mean when i'm working with team clients they love it and if i'm working with families around this i have to warn teachers at school i teach people to do the kiss you know gene simmons you know who that i'm talking about (laughs) yeah i even call it the gene simmons because it it changes your whole focus i want you to stick your tongue out as far as you can <laughs> and make the most, the most rock face you can think of. And, <laughs> and uh, it, it sounds really silly. It looks silly, but um, it really does help.
0: Should we because do it, right it changes, now?
2: Your, changes your focus. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah, please. No, you <laughs> have go, to go, do go, it with come. me.
0: I'm not doing it alone. Ah. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> oh, come on. You can get that tongue out. <laughs> already, <man.
0: laughs>
2: and, and, and so you know, you get, you can make it kind of fun. um, You can make it kind of silly, but you're, what you're doing is changing focus,
0: changing focus. And is acknowledging the thought or like the fear in the moment is like, is, is the acknowledgement of that important? Like, Oh, I'm experiencing a fear reaction. Is that, yeah, it
2: can be, but you know, if you're working, depends on the age and experience of the client Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with fifth graders, never going to go for insight.
0: Right, um right for a 40
2: year old you may want to.
0: Yeah yeah yeah.
2: Um, so but the the skill is is the same it's just do they have to understand when when they do it. Right. What we try to focus on is is scanning your body and if you're feeling tension what can you do? Um you, mm. you know you can, one that is really kind of silly but works really well is uh humming or whistling it changes your focus and it changes your breathing, but it changes your breathing in a safe way rather than practicing breathing exercises. Right. And, you know, and you want it to be something really silly, like some children's lyric, like row, row your boat or
0: twinkle,
2: twinkle, twinkle, twinkle. But one of the kids broke into a six-year-old broke into one of the songs from uh, frozen. (laughs)
0: It's a good one.
2: (laughs) Yep. Which is really funny to kind of watch them try to, to whistle it uh, <laughs> when they're not, when they're not a great whistler anyway, but, you know, it totally, totally interrupts that focus right on, on the fears or what their body's experiencing.
0: So when we are t- sort of training ourselves to not focus so hard on like, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, but to like do something else and sort of interrupt that system, does that just like become easier over time? Like, are we
1: Yeah. When, when does this become easier, Bob?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So the brain hierarchy is designed really interestingly. So if you think of it, you have, you're really looking at four systems. The first one is survival and, and when survival is activated, the conservation of energy part of your brain is activated as well. The conservation of energy aspect is, um how do i habituate survival behavior so that it becomes automatic so it's like an autopilot mm. and so survival cons- conservation of energy survival conservation of energy the other when you ac- activate the next piece which is avoidance when you activate avoidance you're also activating that that conservation of energy so you build all sorts of well-developed neural pathways the nature of being a human being is because our whole system is scaled towards uh, survival and, uh, you know, safety and avoidance. Um, it's part of the survival mechanism we have. We tend to overlearn those those pathways of conservation, and when we move into uh, a regulated system where we have executive functioning we tend to underlearn those in conservation of energy. What? We have to do them a lot longer, a lot more often in order to develop the the neural pathways that they become automatic behavior.
0: So conservation of energy, what does that mean?
2: That's the part of your, that's your system's way, they building habit. So something becomes automatic. You know, there's lots of different pieces involved, but it's, if you just think of it, as the part of you that's looking to make this easy,
0: right, right, and, right, okay.
2: And okay. so our systems are designed to make it easy to be safe and to to avoid. It's we don't have a very good mechanism for employing the um, the conservation of energy in our executive functioning system unless we can really focus. And so the, the more intently we can focus on something while we're in that state, the more we'll build, more conservation of energy is built into that. In other words, more habit is built into it.
0: Can I try okay? to summarize what you just said and tell me if sure. I'm doing it wrong? The more we can pause and concentrate and be intentional, to use your word, mm-hmm. in a moment of arousal, the more that can kind of be a habit that we build and it sort of become, starts to happen naturally. Mm -hmm. but it takes a period of really working on it and it being very difficult to sort of focus and do the correct
1: thing in that state of arousal.
2: It is because our society isn't designed to support people focusing on something.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's one thing after another.
2: And we promote it by saying, well, people multitask. If you want to develop patterns that are useful, you focus on one thing and you focus intently on it until you've done it multiple times.
0: And the brain is plastic. So for people who don't know what this means, our brains are constantly changing and restructuring and we can we can like forge new this is how habits are built is we're like basically laying down new pathways and then laying them down again and laying them down again. That's why it's so hard to do a new job in the beginning and it gets easier over time because you're simply practicing. It's literally changing our brains and the same thing can happen in Recovery from trauma or OCD, you know, or maybe it's the same thing. The first few months of when I finally found the correct kind of therapy, because it took a long time to find someone who specialized in what I was experiencing, those first few months were so hard. And every time I was like, okay, I'm feeling panic about this thing, or like I'm stuck in this thought loop and this obsession, this thought spiral. I'm going to do the thing I'm supposed to do. It doesn't feel like it's working. It doesn't feel like it's working, but I'm going to like just go with what my therapist tells me and be intentional and make a choice to like shift my focus even though it feels terrifying and horrible. Over time, this just got easier. It's just become easier. It's habit. Exactly, exactly. And so that work that I've done for my particular thing, which is OCD, is work that we can also do if we have particular triggers and we can sort of practice, okay, I know if I'm going to be triggered by this event, this person, this memory, I can practice intentionally pausing, shifting my focus. And then it, my brain like doesn't see that as that important or scary anymore over time. Is that right?
2: Yep. That's right.
0: Cool. You Thanks. got so. it. Yay.
2: <laughs> and, and if you can get people there through you know the work you do with them, you don't need a model of treatment.
0: So it's just like getting to a point where the things that scare you or the memories that scare you just don't feel like that big of a deal anymore because you know what to do when it happens.
2: Yep. It's that having a strategy that works to preserve and look, listen how reinforcing it is. What are you really doing is you recognize the trigger and you now have strategies that allow you to feel safe and in control.
0: Mm. We feel a feeling of fear And in order to like feel in control of that fear, we like either want to go cower or we lashing out at other people. Do we need to give up control, the feeling of control in order to heal? Or do we need to actually develop a stronger sense of control? Yeah. Tell us how control plays a factor.
2: The thing is that you're not in control. What happens when you try to use an aggressive means of gaining control is that you offend people and you just get further and further dysregulated. So it's not really helping you it just continues it becomes a perpetual if you want to think of it is a kind of a characteristic of how you operate in the world because you've done it so much you've got all these patterns around it but it doesn't help you really gain control and that's what's frustrating you're trying to get control you're not feeling in control so what do you do is you amp up your control mechanism
0: and is that also true of when we're trying to control ourselves
2: Uh uh-huh you know, we can get totally dissociated at, the, at that other side of that, shut down, kind of that feeling of depersonalization, the world isn't real, uh, I'm not real kind of thing. The controlling of self is the, has the greater lethality risk because people will engage in state-changing activities like drugs and alcohol or compulsive behaviors or obsessive behaviors, to try not to feel what they're feeling.
0: Right. And
2: both are attempts to control. But until someone is regulated, they can't really control. Right. And so what the um, when you get them in a regulated state and they feel like and know that they can manage themselves, you know, it's really funny. A lot of the evidence-based models are have a lot of protocols. But even when I've used them, once I get somebody regulated, you know, and we move into the application of a model, they go a lot faster than the model. Mm. And a lot of times they're saying, like, I can already do that. Why, you know, why are you telling me this? Right. So what, what Eric and I uh, both found, Eric Gentry, who's kind of my research buddy on some of this stuff, what we found is that well over half of our really difficult trauma cases, once you get them regulated, they don't feel like they need to do anything else. And Even Bessel van der Kolk in the 2014 book, Body Keeps the Score says if they can function well every day, they don't need therapy. Mm. And so part of this is just kind of a different mentality. You can understand that the way I'm talking about this does not support the infrastructures of the mental health industrial complex or the pharmaceutical industrial complex.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, do you suggest medication to help regulate people? Or do you think that there's more natural ways to do it? Yes and no. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I
2: I am kind of a minimalist when it comes to medication. Sometimes it's absolutely necessary as a starting point, but it can't be your ending point. Right, yeah. Because then what you do is trade one dependence for another. The other piece is I'd really rather uh, explore the more natural ways of doing it than the medication route because most of the naturopathic kinds of approaches tend to be have less side effects in the long run.
0: I had a tapering off period I, I do not enjoy thinking about <laughs> when I was sort of SSRI.
2: <laughs> and a lot of times too, drug companies, the researchers in those companies are amazing folks, really dedicated to helping. And then it runs into this marketing mm. uh, finance driven system that I think is kind of loathsome. But right. A lot of these medications, as soon as they come out, they start looking for other applications for them. And so you have a medication that can be used here, 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 and here. You know, it wasn't ever designed for that. And there's no studies that really support it.
0: My impression is that it's useful if it's just too hard to get regulated. Their pain is just so extreme or their trauma is so extreme or depression, whatever. Regular stuff isn't working. So it's just to get you to a baseline. So then you can then do the work.
2: Right. And it's then form the habits. Exactly.
0: Point. It sounded like what you were saying to me, my takeaway was that like all the controlling methods that we do, whether it's drugs or like pushing the thoughts away or avoidance, we kind of have to give up those control methods in order to actually get to a place where we can be in control of ourselves again, right?
2: I'm going to say it differently. Okay. What you need to do is work with some, if you're going to do this in, in a therapeutic session, mm-hmm sessions, what you need to do is work with somebody that can help you identify the strategies that you use that are successful and do them on purpose, Mm -hmm. rather than what a lot of therapists want to do is teach you new skills, but you already have a lot of skills. Mm. You've survived Mm. because we tend to overlearn the negative. All of our narratives don't focus on what we did. An easy example, you have somebody that grew up in an incestuous family they feel totally powerless. One of the attributes is you feel helplessness a lot with that. But if you're going to help these folks, you have to help them kind of uncover their own competency rather than trying to teach them something that feels outside. And Mm. when you teach somebody something, you put a demand load on them that may stress them more than they are already stressed. Mm. Think of it, a to-do list. How often have you looked at a to-do list and felt overwhelmed? A lot of times we give over, we give people that are overwhelmed to do lists. But what you want to focus on instead is what what is their competency? I worked with a a family that brought their, their uh, 20 year old in for he'd been in treatment for heroin now three times, and they were sure that he was going to, you know, kill himself. And so I'm listening to them talk and I ask him, where's a place that you never use? And they, the rest of his family went nuts. So he'll use anywhere, blah, blah, blah. Uh And the reality is every addict I know of in 30 years has some place they don't use. Mm. And so I asked, what's your place you don't use? And he he told me, and they didn't agree, but he said, no, I don't ever use there. And, And I said, well, do you avoid that space? No, I go at least a couple of times a month for a couple of days. And it was, it was his grandmother's house. And so you never use there? You cut the sh- visits short? No, I go and I don't use for a couple of days. So what is one thing that you do to allow yourself not to use in that situation? And what we did is deconstruct the strategy, strategies that he already possesses that work for him in, in controlling his own behavior, which once it was clear what he does, could we, could you apply this to other things? what might that look like? Right. And, and he took control of that and I didn't have to teach him anything. All I had to do is help him discover what he was already competent at. Anybody that the more horrible someone's trauma history is, the more competency they possess. It's just that no one's ever focused on it with
0: him. Wow. Yes. Yes. We, we, (sighs) we, We focus so much, and this is why we wanted to talk to you and the other people we're talking to this month. We focus so much on how trauma, like, debilitates us and ruins our lives. And what we want to talk about is, like, what is the other side of that picture? If we have survived that, like, how can we get through it? How can we find the things within our, like, the usefulness of those experiences? How can we grow from that? How can we heal, you know? And I love that approach because it's not focused on, like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? It's like, no, what did I do right? If I was, I was in that situation for years, you know, you survive so much. If you have, if you've had an abusive childhood, if you've grown up in a cult or whatever it may be, like you survived so much. And there's so much that you can draw from, from those experiences.
2: It's just a matter of having somebody that can, that can help you make them concrete and value them.
0: The thing is, most people don't have access to therapists who possess these perspectives. Robert, this is the problem.
2: Well, this is why we spend an awful lot of time training people. It is essential we, you know, and it, it's really funny. What I find is that this perspective is much more accepted outside of the United States than in the United States. Mm. There's a growing uh, movement towards this in Pakistan and in India and in Singapore, mm. Mm. Peru. or even working with a group that are attached to the uh, University of Tehran in Iran, supporting and consulting them on the building of this kind of a practice. In Iran. We have Saudi Saudi affiliates and the government ministers. I've even had conversations with them around some of this. So, you know, it's interesting that when you have a society that is so driven as ours is by marketing and consumerism, they don't really want a well-regulated population. And I understand that. The politics wouldn't work if you had a well-regulated population. Nobody that's been in office for the last thirty years would actually have made it. That, I won't say any more about that. But <laughs> you know, most most companies that are selling products don't want you to be a well-regulated population. Right. We want to keep people aroused and not have the consequences of it. And that's crazy.
0: There's like some social currency in this moment in time. In having a traumatic experience in your past or having a, a diagnosis or whatever. Making it like your identity. Yeah.
2: I call it the, the Woody Allen effect. Mm.
0: Well, why, why?
2: Well, because Woody Allen was always talking about his neurotic behavior, you know. you know.
0: It's his brand,
2: yeah. <laughs> it's his brand. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there is, uh, if you don't have a trauma, then, you know, you don't have anything to talk about.
1: Yeah, you're a boring and, dinner party guest. Just get out.
2: <laughs> and if you don't, emote in strong, vivid emotions, then there must be something wrong with you. If you don't see this injustice and get as upset about it as uh, that person is, then, you know, you are not being supportive. We build a lot of this messaging into our society. Right. Don't you dare try to be regulated.
0: Well, when we see an extreme emotion or feeling something sort of extreme or using a really loud voice or whatever it is, that is just like more exciting to our brains. So like it makes sense on some level. It's just more interesting than someone who's yeah. like, yeah, this um, this is causing a lot of harm and, um, and I don't like it. You know, like passion. We're drawn to passion. So no. it makes sense.
2: Novelty. We're actually drawn mm. to novelty.
0: Mm. Interesting. But I think that we would grow so much as a society, even if we did still – elevate people who'd experienced a lot of pain or something. We shifted our focus to how did you heal from that? How did you grow from that? How did you come to be well-regulated after something that threw you off balance? Like I think that is the thing that we should be trying to value and strive for culturally. Yeah.
2: You, you want to have fun at a dinner party and somebody's telling telling about their horrible event, you start asking them around, well, how did you get through that?
0: Yeah. You know,
2: what's the first thing you did to take action? How did you learn that that would work for you? All of a sudden they're angry at you because what they want is, (laughs) and everybody else is going to be angry at you too, because (laughs) what they want is an opportunity to feel this vivid emotion because by goodness, we believe in intense emotion in this society and we need to do things to ramp that up, not calm it down. And, you know, it's nuts. It's horrible for us as a human being to be charged up all the time.
1: <laughs> so do you think that the that the highest state that we can achieve is just not being reactive, choosing intentionally and living a life that is on purpose? Of course. Yeah.
2: Living a life that's intentional and I'm not going to say needs a purpose but mm-hmm. intentional and deliberate is, you know, I think that's the ultimate maturity.
0: It's pr- it's building the skill of responding instead of reacting, right?
2: It's really funny to me. We give all this attention to artists that are the Van Goghs of the world, yeah. the, the ones that are a little nutty and extreme. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Most, most of the artists that I know are very focused, very intentional about what they're doing. Same with musicians. They are not wild-eyed, unregulated folks, uh, or at least if they are, they don't. they're not very successful on a continuing basis. <laughs> the the ones that are successful are the ones that are thoughtful and intentional and deliberate about what they do. And, you know, that's it's crazy that we don't promote that more.
0: Well, I would actually argue that in in the music industry, I've seen it over and over and over again that if an artist is behaving in a way that's like kind of antisocial, <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. Everyone's like they're a star. I'm like, yeah. "No, they just like showed up 2 hours late and talked mm-hmm. about how great they were for 20 minutes straight and then like we're complete asshole to everyone like that's not uh, that doesn't mean they're a star it just means that they're like novel basically um same and same with like method actors and you know they're geniuses i'm like no they're just like louder that's it
2: the other thing is that because of we're using emotional appeals people don't recognize the difference between the public persona and the person
1: at all right
2: no no absolutely not i'm going to use alice cooper as an example (laughs) most people alice cooper's career he's like everybody thinks wow this guy's deranged you know he's wild and crazy but he's a very conservative person yeah you know he's very involved in in the in christian faith and he's you know he's a large contributor to you know christian colleges and
1: he loves golf
2: he, he loves golf, and he's, he's kind of into—he's kind of into healthy lifestyles. We're spreading this and, you know, rumor
0: now. Yeah. Alice Cooper loves golf. <laughs> no, he does, Steve. Yeah, he does. Just... <laughs> you
2: know, I think it's hysterical because I stand in front of groups and talk for hours, and and people mistake my presentation person as that's who I am. They don't realize that I am really a horrible introvert, and. <laughs> So they, yeah. they come up, they're all excited to have been there. They want to invite me to dinner. And the last thing I want to do ever is to sit in dinner with total strangers.
0: Oh my God, after, I could not relate more. You're talking all day. <laughs> I could not relate more. People Same. make so many assumptions about my personality based on my internet persona. And I am c- consistently told, wow, you're not how I expected at all. You're so different from how you come off. Interesting. Yeah. I'm just cooler, you guys. (laughs) Final question. If someone in our lives is behaving in a way that betrays that they're dysregulated, you know, through anger or being shut down or whatever, what is a way that we can respond to sort of help bring them back or, or reconnect with them? First of all,
2: the moment you recognize they're dysregulated, check yourself. If you're regulating pretty well, the way the thing that will calm them down the most is connecting with them relationally. I can explain what happens when you connect with somebody relationally there. They get a dose of oxytocin, right, which helps calm their system down. I'll give you a kind of a picture of the difference. A kid comes into into class. He's had a heck of a weekend. It's Monday morning. He's fully aroused. And you're going to see. So he's having trouble sitting still. Um, it's math class. He's fidgeting. He's looking all over the place. He can't focus, which is exactly what should be happening if his body's in a state of arousal. So if the teacher can regulate themselves and make and make sure they're regulated, they could go over, kneel down, look this kid in the face, put a hand on their shoulder and say, you seemed like you're having a real tough day. Is there something going on that I can really help with? What would help you be able to be here today? And the kid will calm down. Now, they still may not calm down enough, but at least it won't grow into a power struggle. But what I see teachers do instead is they see that kid's behavior as a confrontation of their power. And so what they do is become punitive, aggressive, shaming. And then they're Mm. surprised that the kid blows up. Right. So part of this is self-awareness of yourself. If you see somebody else dysregulated, the question is, how can i connect with them i watched somebody do a really good job of this in a large supermarket uh, a mother with five or six children that apparently were ill and screaming their heads off basically or fussing and everybody was kind of looking at the mom with that shame look like how could you do how could you be here with those kids and then one person that walked from another line down and and put a hand on this woman's shoulder and said it seems like you, you're having quite a day. What can I do to help you? Mm. And you could just see this woman's whole demeanor just go
0: <sighs> right.
2: If you want to think of it in the the simplest form possible, trauma care is about the intentional application of compassion. Mm. Wherever you're at, when you see people that are dysregulated, if you can think, how can I express compassion? That's not the same. That's not sympathy. Compassion has an action part to it. What can I do to help this person calm down?
0: Mm, I love that. That makes me, first of all, that's just a good skill for any relationship. And, you know, there's this book, Nonviolent Communication, which talks about how, like, if someone is saying something that's upsetting to you, instead of reacting emotionally to it and then it becomes a power struggle, like you said, you try to reflect their feelings back to them and say, it seems like you're feeling this. This way, it seems like you're upset about this. Like, and basically just try to empathize and connect, and that generally will neutralize people as opposed to you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. It also makes me think of um this study. It was on placebos, and it was on the difference in the quality of placebo. Basically, the conclusion of the study, I, I won't go into the whole thing, but was that. So patients who experienced um, alleviated symptoms from a placebo, everyone got the placebo. But the patients who got treatment, placebo treatment from a a doctor or practitioner that treated them with care, kindness, touched their shoulder asked in an appropriate way, asked them how they're feeling, um, those patients saw way more relief than the patients who got the exact same placebo care, but it, it was just like... You know, just like your, your kind
1: of shitty doctor bedside manner or whatever.
2: <laughs> right. Relationships heal.
1: Which is so frustrating because trauma keeps you from relationships. So it's a, a it's a cycle that you're starting to break, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So it's so important to find someone who you can – who you do feel safe with. and, and Like mm-hmm. be that a therapist or anyone in your life, right?
2: Someone that can lovingly um, point out when – and you know it's coming from a love place rather than you know they're 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 upset. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be really powerful.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. Ugh, I want to practice that in all of my relationships. Me too. Staying regulated to help everyone else be regulated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, amen.
2: Well, and, you know that's not—it really shouldn't be news to us. You know, if you look at—I uh, don't know if you—if you're familiar with the work of Gabor Mate. One of the things he did, what I thought was really hysterical, people were saying, "Well, what what is the best environment for for good relationships?" And he said, "Hunter gatherer societies," and people were looking at what, because they were thinking, you know, in modern society. And he says, "No, societies where every child has interaction with a lot of adults that mm. all care. If we really want to make an impact." We've lost that in our society. We've lost that communal support. Uh, most people don't even live around the, their closest blood relatives. Right. And so, where do where? How can you be supported when when you don't have a network of people that care about you or care about your kids? Or how can you be calm and regulated if you don't have that kind of structure? Right. And, and he does he does does a much better job of it than I do. He's got a practically, I don't know, half a book dedicated to it. So, but I, it's true. Um, one of the things we focus on a lot of times when we're working with people that have complex trauma is identifying people that are safe or safer, and how to connect with them.
0: That yearning for safety can be one of the things that actually brings people into cults, unfortunately, because exactly. we crave that. We need that community. community. Yeah.
2: yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm. Because you're dealing with a dysregulated person looking f- is in survival mode. <sighs> yep.
0: mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
2: Not really. I, I can talk about this stuff all the time. So i I figure if you say it's time, I probably should gracefully bail out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. uh, so the Arizona Trauma Institute, you do trainings for therapists. You know, if any, if someone's interested in learning more about your work, where should they go?
2: They can go to our website or do a search for me. They'll, they'll pull up. We, we offer nearly 60 courses that we have online. We do a lot of live trainings. We also work with companies all over the world um, to create compassionate environments in their workplace. Mm. We work in lots of different venues, government advocacy, laws. We're trying to change laws.
1: Well, you're doing great work.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yeah. Have a
2: great day. Indeed. Thank you.
1: Bye bye. All right, Lola. This is going to be a little switcheroo today. Amazing episode. Yeah, he's incredible. I'm I'm loving this trauma month so far, y'all. Rethinking trauma. Rethinking trauma. Okay, so we're going to do something a little bit different this time. Usually you ask me if I would join the cult that we're talking about. Today, I'm going to ask you, how do you get regulated?
0: Ooh, good question, Megan.
1: Thank you. I thought of it myself. <laughs>
0: Well, it really changes every time, is the annoying answer. And I mean, that's something we talked about with George last week. Like, not everything is going to work every time. So, things that have worked for me have included meditation, they've included yoga, they've included journaling, they've included anything more physical and mindless, like doing the dishes or cleaning my apartment. But I've also had times where none of those things worked and I had to try something else entirely, you know, right? calling my mom, sitting and sobbing, (laughs) putting on you've got mail three times in a row, you know, like it really just depends on the state. And I think that's the important thing is like if we are feeling dysregulated and our typical tools aren't working, it's okay to do something else. And it doesn't mean that something is wrong. It just means you're in a slightly different state than you were all those other times, you know? I love
1: that. That's beautiful. And meditation and, you know, deep breathing can increase people's anxiety sometimes. Absolutely. I was just going to throw that in. Wim Hof is not for everyone. In fact, you might try it and be like, I hate it. But, you know, Try different things. Why not? If at first you don't succeed, look, look more on YouTube.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But not too
1: far on YouTube, because then then you're going to Teal Swan. Absolutely. Just give it a little dive and then, you know, do some breathing. Do some, do some... Journaling, Draw.
0: If you can draw. I can't draw, but I wish I could, you know? And I, if I could, I would do it and it would
1: make me feel better. I'm
0: sure of it. I just
1: ordered a very intense coloring book.
0: I actually was thinking about
1: getting a coloring book to calm my nerves. Yeah, I'll tell you guys how it goes. You better show us the... The results. I will. Great. Thank you guys for joining us for another beautiful week. We cannot, well, beautiful and weather in Los Angeles. Very difficult worldwide. wise
0: um, But, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, don't even get me started. I didn't even talk about the fucking Supreme
1: Court. Okay, go on. We can't wait to see you here next time. Remember to follow your gut. Watch out for Red Fox. And never, never ever, ever, trust, trust me. me. Bye.